hopefully on the way in you got one of our little handouts and if you've missed any of the sermons they're all on our website, podcast page, your favourite podcast provider, Facebook and YouTube. So don't think, oh, I've missed out on a really good bit. Um, but we're on to Revelation chapter 7 today. And so far we've had stuff about lions, we've had letters to the churches, we've had stuff about Jesus, um, we've had stuff about worship around the throne. And today we're thinking about numbers and something called tribulation, which uh, sounds quite interesting, doesn't it? Uh, this chapter, chapter 7, is, is what we might call an interlude. It's a bit like a break in the midst of the, the plagues and all the, the weird stuff that's happened. But the tone changes slightly. It's a bit like an, an interval in the middle of this major musical. Oh, we stop, we go and get an ice cream, we have a comfort break, have a drink, uh, and kind of something different changes. The gear changes slightly. Now remember that apocalyptic writing is weird when it comes to time. So just because there's a break in the writing doesn't mean that there's a break in the time of what it's talking about. So the stuff that it's talking about is kind of still carrying on, but the person who's doing the writing is kind of his mind's taken somewhere else. So there's a break in the writing, the tone changes, the context, the context changes. And we can look at three things briefly. Verse 1 talks about these four angels. And it says that they're holding back the corners of the earth to prevent the wind blowing. Let's read what it says exactly. Oh, I can't because I've lost chapter 1. There we go. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. This isn't a messed up geography lesson. This is a bit of symbolism coming out again when we remember that Revelation is this writing that can sometimes sound a bit strange and have quite a lot of symbolism. So I don't think you've literally, as that picture says, got four big angels that are like pulling up the earth because there aren't four corners of the earth to pull up. So what's it talking about? Well, there's deep symbolism at play here. The first thing it does is, is push back to Zechariah chapter 6, back in the Old Testament. And the prophet, Zaya, the prophet Zechariah speaks of four winds going out from the presence of God. So immediately the readers of, of John's letter of Revelation, would have, their minds would have gone to Zechariah because they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. And then they thought, ah, oh, four winds, presence of God. God's here. Not just a little bit of God, not just a tiny bit of him. The full presence of God, the full beauty and majesty of the Lord is here. So these four angels, I think, remind us of God's reign over the whole earth. It's a bit like our more modern phrase, the four corners of the earth. Now, we, we say that. We probably know there aren't literally four corners of the earth. But we use that as a phrase, don't we? The four corners of the earth. And so they remind us, this verse 1 reminds us that right in the midst of these seals being broken out that we looked at last week, the seals that are to come that we'll look at next week, both all about judgment, in the midst of this judgment and awful stuff that's going on, God is fully 100% present. So they remind us that in the midst of social decay and of warfare, God's on the throne. He reigns supreme. And and that's particularly tricky maybe for us to think about this morning with all that's going on in the world, particularly in the Holy Land. We hold that intention with the fact that God is on the throne and, and he lets people do what they want very often. But he's on the throne and he reigns supreme. 
So that's the first thing. God is here. And then in verse 4, we hear a number. It was almost like Jeremy was reading us a shopping list of, of the different tribes of Israel. From this tribe, 12,000. From this tribe, 12,000. It kind of repeats itself. We hear a number. Now that's weird. How can you hear a number? It's a reminder again that apocalyptic writing is just a bit strange. What does it mean to hear a number? Um, who, who knows what that, that means? But he hears this number, 144,000. Hands up if you like maths. I don't, I'm not going to get you to do anything. That's fine. I'm not, gonna, I'm not Carol Vorderman. Two from the top and one from the A few of you, four of you, four or five of you like maths. Okay, well apparently, I'm not a mathematician, but, but this number is significant, and we'll look at why in just a moment. But it's a number that's led to all sorts of what I think is quite strange teaching going on. Sometimes when I'm in Aldridge Town Centre and the Jehovah's Witnesses are there, I feel a draw to go and engage with them. And I feel a pulling back on my shoulder that's normally my wife saying, no, for goodness sake, please don't. Oh, I want to talk to them. Um, and very often when we're chatting with these people who have a, a really strong faith and a commitment to truth, I don't think they've got it, but they've got a commitment to it, and they're, but they're, it's good to have chats with people. I'd encourage you to do that with good faith and do it nicely. But often this number comes up, 144,000. And so what the Watchtower movement believe, that's the Jehovah's Witness religion believe, is that this number tells us that's how many people will go to heaven. So 144,000 people will go to heaven and they'll be the kings and the queens. They'll be in charge and other people that don't quite get there will, will stay on earth. They're like a renewed earth. And often, most Jehovah's Witnesses say, I'm not part of the 144,000. To get there, you have to convert a certain number of people. You have to work really hard to get saved. Obviously, hopefully, we don't believe that. Um, and often, they might believe in themselves as the great crowd. We're going to see that in a minute. So Jehovah's Witnesses would say, 144,000 is a literal number. Although, interestingly, they'd say that, but they'd also say that the tribes aren't literal. So they're not consistent with their literalism. Now, I'm not saying this in a way to, to moan about them <laughs> at all. What I'm saying is the teaching that they have, not the people, the teaching they have, I think, is pretty, pretty off. Um, so, so what does that number mean? And I share that just in case you ever engage with one on the marketplace, and you can pull that out. If you're going to say 144,000 is a literal number, are you doing it with the tribes as well? Or if not, are you being inconsistent? And then you can have a great chat about how do you choose what's literal and what's not? But of course, we kind of do that as well, don't we? Because I'm standing here saying that it's kind of a literal number, but it's kind of not. I think it's a powerful, symbolic number. And this is where the math lesson comes in. Are you ready? Three of you are. We're going to do it. This is going to be good fun. Okay, now, again, cleverer people than me have worked this out. I just have the time to look into it a bit. So back in chapter 2, we looked at the number 7 coming up a lot. We had 7 letters to 7 churches. We also know, hopefully, that in apocalyptic writing, numbers are important. And that number 7 means fullness. God took 7 days to create. So 7 is fullness, it's completeness. So let's hold on to that number 7. So they're symbolic. That number 7 is symbolic of the totality of the people of God. Because those letters aren't to be ignored, those seven letters of the churches. We don't ignore them. Roger did a great 
talk on them a few weeks ago. Do catch up with it. We don't ignore them. We say, well, we're not the church in Sardis in the first century. We can ignore it. But we also acknowledge that it was written to the church in Sardis or whatever in the first century. So those letters are symbolic of the church of God throughout time, the whole people of God. Number seven. Hold number seven in your hands. If we go forward to chapter 21 in Revelation, which we will do in a few weeks' time, we'll learn about New Jerusalem. And this is when it gets interesting. So the New Jerusalem measures, this is the measurement of the city, it measures 12,000 stadia in each direction. So hopefully we're thinking 12,007, these are all linked to the number 144. Guess how many cubits the walls of New Jerusalem have? 144 cubits. And it's shaped like a cube. 144,000 is a cube number. The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So chapter 21, in a few weeks' time, speaks of New Jerusalem, the presence of God. This number's linked with that. Not perfectly, but it's linked with it. We might think of number 12, the number associated again with God's people. 12 Tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. 12 times 12 is 144, yes. So we've seen the links. Um, so 12 means, again, all of God's people, the totality of God's people. And a cube, cube number, cube suggests the presence of God. And by the way, we had a square at the beginning of this chapter, didn't we, with the angels pulling out the world. It's so interesting how all these things are interlinked. So I want to suggest in a nutshell that this number speaks of all these things. Now I've had to rush over it. When I was at college we had about two lectures on this one number and I've given you four minutes because we, we could be here all day. But what I want to argue then is that this number, 144,000, speaks of, of a few things. It speaks of the people of God in all its fullness and all their fullness and again it speaks of the presence of God. And so we're reminded this morning that God is fully here and he's fully present and that all of us are welcome. Whether or not you've been a Christian all your life or you're not quite sure where you are with God and all that breadth in between, we're all welcome here as we're exploring what on earth are we doing as we're going through life, trying to be, as our strapline says, doing life for Jesus, all for him. And so we're coming to the end of our Giving Generously fortnight, and as we do so, we're reminded that this God is always with us. He's generous with his presence. He's generous with his salvation. He's generous with his mighty arm. There's no stinginess with God. God is a lavish God. He's not tight-fisted. He's open-handed. He's not miserly. He's lavish in his love for us. This 144,000 isn't a holy huddle. They get into, he into heaven. It's not a group of people that have given the most money, given the most time, know their Bibles really well, come to church every week, say their prayers every day. It's symbolic that God's arms are wide open to the fullness of his people. And it's a reminder that God is always with his people. That in the midst of the suffering we see, in the midst last week of those horses riding, those horses of the apocalypse, in the midst of all that, God is with his people. The psalmist says in Psalm 3, You, Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head high. I lay down and I sleep because the Lord sustains me. Good Anglicans will say every week, The Lord is here. 
yes, you are good Anglicans, well done. Um, and and we, we, we say that and we kind of mean it, but how often, well I hope we really mean it, but how often do we forget that amazing truth, that this God in Revelation, this God that's on the throne, this God that sees everything, this God whose angels are pulling back the corners of the earth because he's on all things and he's ever-present, that God is here this morning ministering to us, that Jesus is walking amongst us with his arms of love and peace and healing. He ministers, he restores, he encourages, he cajoles. And there's something else about these people when we, when we move forward a few verses into verse 14. So we've looked, verse 1, the angels are ever present, the angels of God, the presence of God is ever there. We've looked at this number, 144,000, all of God's people before the throne of the God who is always there. And finally, verse 14 says this, this tremendous, uncountable crowd who fall in worship are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I want to come into land on this word, tribulation. It's a word that doesn't come up a lot in the book of Revelation, but it is a word that's led to all kinds of interesting teaching on this book of Revelation. Um, and to understand it, we have to take a bit of a kind of lay-by. So there's something called the rapture, which some of you might have heard of. And, and the rapture is a kind of doctrine, it's a, it's a teaching that came up in the 1800s that says this. One day, those of us in Christ, poof, will be taken up to heaven. Like a kind of magic great glass elevator. And all of us in Christ will disappear up to heaven. Some of you might have seen the film Left Behind with Nicolas Cage. It's on Netflix. Not very biblical. Quite a good watch. And what's happened is actually people's clothes are left behind as well. I don't know if that's because we'll be naked in heaven. Hopefully we'll be in the white robes. That's what I'm praying for. Um, can you imagine what a disappointment? Anyway. Um, <laughs> getting around that. Um, anyway, so what the rapture teaches us is that those of us in Christ, clothes are left behind. Woom, we're taken up to heaven. And for a period of tribulation, often seven years, people say, there's going to be the holy Christians up in heaven watching what's going on on earth. And what's going on on earth is going to be really bad, lots of plagues, lots of warfare. People that come to faith in Jesus in this time will have to live through it. So they won't be taken up to heaven. They'll be what we call left behind. So that's what this teaching says. So this tribulation, some would say, speak of that. It speaks of a period of time that we won't have to go through because we're good Christians. God takes us out of trouble. But other people that come to faith will have to go through this period of tribulation. I'll be talking more about this uh, tomorrow night at Burning Questions on Monday night. That's called the rapture. Rapture, we're in heaven, tribulation on earth, people come to faith, God comes back. Now, I can see why people believe that, and, I can, and you can argue that from Scripture, but that, that's not really where I lay my hat. That's a doctrine that came up in the 1800s by a chap called Darby. It's quite a new teaching. Lots of people that love the Lord believe it. That's fine. But um, for reasons we haven't got to go into this morning, I've got time to go into why I don't think that. But, but in a nutshell, I, I don't think that'll happen because I don't think God gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card from bad stuff happening. And in fact, what I do think is that, that things will get worse before the Lord comes back. I think that's spot on. But I don't think God takes his people out of trouble. Um, we don't see that with the disciples. We don't see it with Jesus. So I don't see why we'd see it for us. 
And there's also the fact that this word tribulation doesn't actually talk about a set period of time. It pops up all over the Bible. Um, it talks of suffering. It talks of, of pressure. Uh, and it talks more of a sense of, of what we're going through rather than a set period of time. So we see, we see Paul using this word tribulation in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in verse 17, For this light momentary affliction, tribulation, is preparing for us a weight of glory. So Paul says this tribulation we're going through will lead us to glory. Paul says in Romans 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient in trouble. Be patient in suffering. Be constant in prayer. So I don't think what this verse says is that it's all about those Christians that come to faith and go through a set period of time of tribulation. Actually, what I want to generally suggest it means is that for many of us, life is tribulation. Life is suffering. And I know we say across the world there are Christians worse off than us, and that's true. But what I want to give us permission to feel this morning is that actually, for some of us, we feel like we're going through tribulation. Uh, and it's, it's okay to feel like that. And I've been here two years. Um, I know that's not a huge amount of time. But I, I think I know most of you fairly well enough to say that quite a lot of us probably feel like, oh, am I allowed to say I'm feeling like I'm going through tribulation? And you might feel guilty because Christians other, in other parts of the world are going through harder times than you. And yes, that's true. But that doesn't negate the fact that you are going through a time of suffering. We don't escape it. And I had a real sense as I was preparing this that for maybe some of us this morning, you just need to know that it's okay to feel like that. We really miss people who have gone to be with Jesus. It really hurts. It's okay. Those when we have the dark nights of the soul, that's okay. It's okay to be real. There are times when we might feel totally alone. We're putting on a fake plastic smile. Everything's great. And inside we're weeping. It's okay. And in fact, this verse in Revelation honours those of you this morning who feel like that. It gives you honour and it gives you space to say, at some point you will come through it. But that might mean that at the moment you're going through it. That's okay. We're with you as much as we can be. And we end with this encouragement that before the throne of God, we sung of this throne earlier, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun won't beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This isn't just a nice poem that we pull out at funerals to make people feel better. It's not just something we might have on a fridge magnet because it's nice. It's the truth of God's word to us this morning, that one day this will be reality. This will be reality. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And it's something that we pray over the Holy Land this morning. It's something that we pray over our lives today. And I want to say revelation doesn't always point to the future. It's not a checklist of when this has happened, God will return. But I think in this particular passage, there's a real sense 
that it speaks of what we might call the eschatological reality, that's a posh word, what will happen in the future when the Lord returns. No more tears. The good shepherd leads us to streams of eternal living water. If we could have the final slide up, Andy, that would be great, thanks. And as we come to a close of our giving generously fortnight, we've done a couple of things. We've given thanks to God for his generosity to us, all that he's given us. We did that at Harvest. Last week, we were challenged of how we too could be generous. And if you weren't here, um, do grab one of our giving leaflets to encourage you to look again at your financial giving. But today, we do this. We end by thinking that one day, all that we have, all that we hold close to, all that we grip, all that we cling on to, all that hurts us, all that makes us weep, will be gone. And we will be with the Lord forever. And that we'll gather with all of God's people, not just the holy huddle, not just those people that prance around on the stage, but all of us normal people will be there in front of the throne and the fullness of the presence of God will be with us. God walks us through. Friends, we might have eyes that are, are red from weeping. We might be with the psalmist who says that the Lord is collecting our tears in a bottle. We might be pushing through dark nights of the soul where the only person that sees you is Jesus himself. But he's the shepherd lamb who guides us into living water. So we're going to have a moment to be quiet. We're going to pray together before we sing. Let's pray together. We think of the angels, God's reign over the world. We think of this number, 144,000. So interesting in so many ways, but in essence, a reminder of all of God's people before the throne. And we think of that word, philipsis, tribulation. Not a time that God promises to take us out of. No, a time right now that God promises to be with us in the middle of. And we're going to pray, first of all, for those for whom maybe that word tribulation really sums up how you're feeling at the moment. And maybe even there's been a sense of guilt. Maybe over the last even few weeks or months you've been thinking, I can't feel this. I'm a Christian. Uh, God loves me. And there's been a real sense of guilt that you're feeling that. But I think this reading reminds us that we have permission to feel like we're going through that period. Yes, God's with us. That's good news. But we have permission to feel like that. So if that's you, we'll just say a prayer for you. You don't need to do anything embarrassing like stand up or put your hand in the air. You, you might want to get someone to pray for you in a, in a minute. That would be brilliant. But if that is you, you might want to put your hands out in front of you where no one else will see. It's just between you and the Lord. You might want to just acknowledge in your heart that this prayer is for you. So Lord Jesus, for those of us for whom this has been a season of tribulation, and maybe even our heart has longed for you to take us out of it. Thank you that you know us, that you store our tears in a bottle and you love us. God of all comfort, would you come, Holy Spirit, even now, would you fill troubled hearts with your gift of peace and joy? <laughs> 